going on? It's Christopher Governor Show, and we're watching Trying Pot on the Trailer Going to Jail. One thing that I absolutely love seeing lately is the flailing about by Old Donnie and his entire team. Because what they're quickly realizing is that the tricks Trump. that have worked for him for decades, really, and for all of the attorneys that have worked for him on and off Trump over those years, Trump. aren't working anymore, and they are losing their minds. And what this culminates wait, wait. in is one of Trump's lawyers not only having a freakout, a nonsensical freakout, live on TV as they can't rationalize any sort of argument and their brain conks out on them, but also them wait, wait. insulting people in court and getting smacked down by a judge for it. But we have to build to this point because what we're seeing right now is that the delay and deny strategy of old Donnie that's worked for him forever, the shell game strategy that's worked for him forever isn't working anymore. As everyone knows now, well, not just God. insiders, but everybody knows he's built his entire corporate and political career on a lie, and his legal strategy is threadbare at best. Watch these clips when it breaks stuff down and get into a water's Uh, litigation. That's really part of the process. There's always an 
And so Gahal, Alina Haba, in court, say things like this, and then the judge knocked them out, and then it says here, the court will not tolerate by counsel such inappropriate language again. So basically saying that, you know, Alina Haba is being called out for using inappropriate language in court. Judges are sick and tired of the Trump BS and the Trump lawyer BS. But look at this crazy argument she makes on TV. Look at this brain-melting punk out. They're also saying that if they do charge, they're not going to do it till after the election. Uh, what, what's your take on all that? This time, what do you think it is? I mean, this is such a political hack. So they're just trying to stay away from any implication that they're doing this because of the midterm. Right. So they said that if there's going to be a charge, it'll be after. Let's remember, they didn't bring charges before. This is all they got, guys. The Trump lawyers have no real argument about the fact that this dude's getting indicted. So they have two <laughs> things right now. One, have you seen this? Is the, oh, they're finally doing something about Hunter as a premium to going after Donald. They're going to hit Hunter, when they hit Hunter, it'll be for some token little thing, and then they're going to go get Donald to use that as cover to make it non-biased. And uh -huh. now she's like, oh, they're waiting until after the midterms, because if they're going to do something, they don't want to make it political, but by doing that, they're making it political. It's almost like they, they, you want your guy to be charged. It's if they can't have it both ways. On the one hand, they want Hunter locked up. But don't dare lock up Hunter, because oh, that's going to get our guy. And on the other hand, it's like, don't charge us now before the midterms, because it's political. But do it now, because to do it later is not trying to hide the political side. It's a, it's a broken, broken woman, a broken team, and a broken Donald Trump. Uh -huh. The lies they've tried to force ain't working Haha, motherfucker, going down, bitch. Hot on the trail of Trump going to jail, motherfuckers. Betches. See what other juicy stuff is going on. Some folks, one thing that I absolutely love seeing lately oh, is the flailing about by old, old Dorney. Carson's been dismantled in musty takedown interview with Mady Hassan. That's cool, okay. She's such a kind Now you have Mehdi Hassan, host of the Mehdi Hassan Show on Peacock and MSNBC. Mehdi, thanks for coming back on. Brian, thanks for having me. So let's start with, uh, with the most predictable, if not most infuriating news of the day, which is uh, Kirsten Sinema's speech on the Senate floor announcing that she won't support the turnout uh, for the filibuster for voting rights. Uh, that, that she supports voting rights, just, just not the way to act. What a planet on which she's acting in good faith. Like, what's the upside huh. for her? What on God's green earth is the end game here? It is one of the great questions of modern American politics. What is going on inside Kirsten Sinema's head? Unlike Joe Manchin, her partner in crime, she doesn't do many interviews. Hardly yet. When you count on one hand how many TV interviews she's done in the last year,
мама.
because we don't know what would happen. I mean, I'm not going to pretend that it would have worked, but there was no harm in trying. Right, can't be in a worse position than he's in right now. No, you cannot be in a worse position than now. I'm, I'm interested in the debate over whether it's the media's yeah, role can. to explain the White House's accomplishments as opposed to, to what they do now, which is basically cover the horse race element of it. So it's not what's in Build Back Better, it's how many votes will Build Back Better get? Will Manchin support it? If a certain provision isn't included in reconciliation, is it going to get filibustered? And so, yeah, people are left not knowing what the hell's in the thing. You know, is it, yeah. is it the media's responsibility to cover the content of legislation over the political jockeying? Or is it solely Democrats' responsibility to message their own legislation? It's a good question. I think the problem is, I mean, first, the first issue is build that better. Yes, there's never been good coverage of the policy content of that bill, partly because it's such a huge and sprawling bill. We don't even have a name for it. You know, as somebody who works on a nightly show, me and my producers always be like, what's the short form? The social policy bill, the right. climate change. And, you know, there were so I mean, many no, different Nothing worse than the, than the $3.5 trillion reconciliation package. Yeah, and, that itself, and then there was a debate that, and then there was a debate that itself is not accurate. It's 3.5 trillion over 10 years. Yeah. Why are we giving the 10-year price, not the right. annual price? We don't do that with the Pentagon budget. We don't say 7.5 trillion dollar Pentagon budget. We say 750 billion. So I think there there was always a debate about how we cover Build Back Better. I did a, a a video that went viral where I kind of went through what's in the bill just very very quickly in 60 seconds just to show that it can be done. And there's a lot of good stuff in there. I didn't even get through half of it. Now. So there's one issue is, is the media very good at covering policy debates? No. Does it prefer horse races? Yes. That, that's, you know, that's been with us since eternity. I think there's a separate yeah, debate about the achievement purposes, which is sort of about selling achievements. You know, ironically, it's about being fair, which a lot of uh, journalists go on and on about. They complain about people like me, opinion, and saying we should take positions. They say, oh, you know, it's neutral. Neutral. Okay, well, in the name of neutrality, why don't you cover things like you covered them under other presidents? You've seen, Brian, there are a bunch of Twitter threads out there recently pulling together how AP and the New York Times and the Post and others covered uh, jobs reports under Trump versus jobs reports under Biden, covered inflation under Trump versus inflation under Biden, growth under Trump versus growth under Biden. There was a decidedly negative spin in some of the coverage, uh, relatively speaking. It's almost like we created Donald Trump on a trailer. Which House Democrats are going to, 
and it's just taken for granted that not a single Republican is voting for any of it. Why? Right now, the, the concept of both, both sides is the dominant theme in media. So you have Democrats who... But they're not even following their both sides script, is what I'm saying. I'm not even a fan of both sides in the vote. It comes yeah. to policy. They don't do both sides. Building on that, you know, we do see uh, to a degree that, that, that both sides is the default setting. And so Democrats could say, you know, the vaccine is 99% effective. Republicans could say, actually, it makes your arms fall off. And the headlines would be, you know, uh, a feud erupts over vaccine side effects. So yeah. it, is it the media's job to act as stenographers or, or umpires, I guess, is the is the most common... Uh, again, again, I mean, look, even, even the umpire analogy, which is not one I'm a fan of, but even if you go down the umpire road, they're not even doing that. They're not calling out one side. They are only calling it. Imagine being an umpire of a game and you're only going after one of the two teams and arguing between the different players. You're just ignoring the other half of the court. So I just find this whole uh, analogy, you know, Maggie Haberman of the New York Times was asked by someone on Twitter the other day, like, why aren't you asking Manchinson about this or that, about this, you know, their U-turn on this, how they plan to get voting? And she says, that's not our job. That's the White House's job. Really? I think it is the job of journalists to ask people in power to explain their positions, to explain their U-turns, to explain their contradictions and inconsistencies, uh, to point out the flaws in whatever plan they're pushing. Uh, I don't think that's the White House's job, and I don't think that's beyond the job of a journalist. In fact, I think it's the opposite. It's just the cinema says, I support this legislation, uh, but I also support the filibuster. It is the job of a journalist every time you manage to get cinema in a hallway, she doesn't sit down with you to say, how do you reconcile the two? It is impossible to say you support the legislation while supporting the filibuster. That is, for want of a better word, a lie. Focusing on that on that asymmetry between the two sides, you know, Republicans do have Fox News, they have OAN and Newsmax, Breitbart, Daily Caller, they own yeah. Facebook, their podcasts are at the top of the charts. They have a messaging messaging apparatus that dwarfs the Democrats. So how do Democrats fight in this ecosystem? Is there too much reliance on mainstream media? Is there not enough focus on local outlets? What's what's the avenue to, to rectify this asymmetry here? Busy women across America are using the Kindle ATM. This right here is the Kindle e-reader app. It's owned by Amazon, which is one of the world's largest marketplaces. And what's what's the avenue to, to rectify this asymmetry here? Yeah, it's a great question. I don't think there's an easy answer for, for Democrats or for those of us who want to live in a reality-based universe and a reality-based media. Sometimes I feel like you know banging my head against the wall that you know no matter what we do, you know we can do as amazing coverage as possible. I'll give you an example. The, the focus groups that were carried out recently that the McClatchy team looked at, that they were live tweeting, where a bunch of soft Biden and Trump voters, quote unquote, swing voters sitting around the table saying they don't know what January 6th refers to. They think it's insurrection has been exaggerated, that Biden needs to move on and stop being divisive. And you're wondering, oh, my God, like who? And you look at that. Who is to blame for that? Is it just Fox? Is it the failure of the quote yeah. unquote liberal media to actually cover one six in the way it needs to be covered? Uh, is it Corporate the failure media. Of the media? Uh, and I think Joe Biden has to hold his hand up here. The fact that he didn't give that speech earlier, the fact that he didn't go to town. I mean, you think about 2021. At the beginning of 2021, the supporters of one particular political party, incited by the leader of that political party, violently attacked the Capitol as part of a plot to overthrow democracy in America. By the end of 2021, not a single voting rights bill or election bill has been passed by the Democratic Party, and not a single top person has been uh, charged or indicted by the Biden Justice Department. And you have the president who, when he was asked about um, did Donald Trump deliberately infect him with COVID a few weeks ago before Christmas, he says, well, I, I don't tend to think about the guy very often, which is, remind me, the worst thing Joe Biden said in 2021. Why aren't you thinking about him more often? The guy is the former president. He 
possibly the next president, he's sitting in Mar-a-Lago continuing to incite insurrection against the government and push a big lie. Why on earth aren't you thinking about this guy who hasn't been prosecuted anywhere for any of the exactly. multiple crimes that were documented on his watch? So that is the fundamental flaw. Like the Democratic Party never went to town. Look at what the Republicans did on Benghazi and tell me that the Democratic Party did 1% of that in 2021 in regards to an actual insurrection that killed far more Americans. At some point, we have to get over this. When they go low, we go high mentality that just creates this vacuum that Republicans will then fill with disinformation because we're we're too above the fray. You know what I mean? And yeah, don't, don't, don't forget, Brian, in the, in the immediate month after 1-6, Republicans were not as crazy as they are now. They were Republican told... legislators distanced themselves from Trump. They were told that Nancy Pelosi refused to call the National Guards. That's what the Republicans say from their indoctrination on right-wing media which there's a corporate media monopoly and five corporations own all of our media and it needs to be broken up so call the doge 202-5942000 multiple uh, senators and house members voted to impeach and convict him republican voters were not hundred were not pro insurrection in the way that they are now as you say a vacuum was left into that space came the Bannons and the Newsmaxes and the Tucker Carlsons of this world. And a year later, just look at the polling. Republicans are much, you know, much less likely to want to prosecute insurrectionists than they did a year ago. Much more likely to believe they were patriots than they did a year ago. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, all of that, all of that, that, that gap that was left by the Democratic Party. Fake and, I'm sorry, that's, yeah. has, Democrats have to hold their hands up. They spent much of 2021, uh, the first half of 2021, they spent arguing about, uh, you know, Fake. police and would it cost them seats in the house and the second half of 2021 they spent arguing about how do we respond to critical race theory and school closures meanwhile the republican party is off you know pushing conspiracies about dead venezuelan president changing election machine and they're and they're somehow winning the winning the narrative with that with winning the that narrative bullshit. according to the polls they're ahead in the yeah. congressional uh preference for the midterms that's astonishing the party should have been ostracized this party should have been yeah. dead politically after half a million dead
Titans and an insurrection. Instead, they're back within a year, ready to take over again? Astonishing. Well, that's actually the perfect segue into my next question, and that is that in this current media environment, it's basically Republicans lie about something, about the big lie, about federal takeover of elections, about COVID, vaccines, whatever it is, and the rest of us, you know, myself, you, spend all of our time and resources debunking those lies, which no one on the right even sees because it's a closed feedback loop. But it doesn't change the fact that Republicans are driving the narrative here and that Democrats are solely on defense. So how does that ever change in an environment where Republicans have no scruples and there's actually incentive to lie? These are big questions, Brian. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm, just, I'm just asking you to just solve, solve the biggest issues. I know. Issues I, I grapple with right these now. issues every day, and I can podcast. be honest with you and your viewers and listeners. I don't come to any easy answers. I think we're in a very dangerous and dark place for American democracy, for American, not just American democracy, we say American democracy, we think of elections. I'm talking about this country as a whole. I mean, we're now having people talking about civil war. I don't think a civil war is around the corner, but the fact that we're even having the discussion tells you everything we need to know. You know, we have people like Barbara Walter, a political scientist who came on my show recently to talk about how she's an expert on civil war, saying America is closer to another civil war than it's ever been since the last one. You know, that is where we are as a country. One of the main reasons we're in this position is because this of misinformation, is because of a lack of traitors, uh, like agreement and a shared reality. So Perjury traitor green. The Republicans want to pull out of the presidential debate. And fuckface Nazi always tweets seventeen seventy six. Just bragged about the crowd size at January sixth. Recently in a one of his super spreader rallies. Yet another part of American public life and American political institutions, if you want to call it that, which Republicans are withdrawing from. One place where you had some shared reality, where everyone watched the same thing at the same time, well, not everyone, but tens of millions of people still. Um, and, you know, they are vacating from every space that was a place of uh, shared interest, shared values, shared reality. And that is a very dangerous place to be. And, it's, you know, you can talk about, as you say, you can debunk a lie here or there, you can give a speech here or there. That's not enough. Until there is a complete transformation in the way you think about American politics and democracy, understand the scale of the challenge, understand that this is not... The people who still talk about bipartisanship, I mean, it just makes me want to cry. When you see Dick Durbin on CNN this week saying, well, maybe the president went too far. You just have to stop and think, this is not a party, the Democratic Party, that is cut out to save democracy. It's just not. It's living in some alternative universe that I don't know where it is. They're not in the universe I'm in. I'm in the real world, and in the real world, I don't know what the hell happens in the Senate behind closed doors when they're all backslapping each other and having lunches together and being friends in the Senate gym, but in the real world, uh, sorry to break it to you, you know, we have a radicalized Republican Party, we have militia movements, we have hate crimes, we have domestic terrorism, we have mm-hmm. right-wing media, as you say, inciting a lot of this, mm-hmm. and there's no end in sight, we're only going in one direction. There may be a light at the end of the tunnel, but it's a very dark tunnel uh, before we can see it. Yeah, I think uh, your point about Democrats being able to get out of their own way is especially important. Um, you know, I mean, the I, few I, Democrats who are willing to take the fight, they're not the ones who are in charge. Let's finish up with this. I want to know, how, how do we reconcile the outrage cycle that certain Republicans thrive off of? So, like, you have the Marjorie Taylor Greens, the Matt Gaetzes, Jim Jordan, whatever, and, you know, they'll say something uh, purposefully provocative so that, you know, to, to kind of force people to cover it, and then, of course, they were able to, to use that to raise money or do whatever they have to do. Is it more important to ignore these things and kind of bury our heads in the sand, so to speak, while these bad things are happening, or to cover them because 
it's newsworthy, it shows what the public authority has yes. become, but at the same time, gives them the exact attention that they crave. Yeah. Hi, I'm Dr. Bradley Nelson, author of the Emotion Code, and I would like to invite you to a special, free, online event where I'm going to be explaining to you what the Emotion Code is, how it works, and why it is the easiest and fastest and simplest and most effective method of energy healing that's available in the world today. You're going to learn newsworthy. It shows what the Republican Party has yes. become, but at the same time, gives them the exact attention that they crave. Yeah, it's another it's another great question, another huge dilemma that we were going to do a segment on the show this week on that very subject. And um, my good friend Molly John Fast wrote a very good piece for the Atlantic on this, uh, quoting um, an expert on this who calls it rage farming. Uh, that they are farming our rage. The Texas GOP did this with their ridiculous tweet the other day saying, well, if you can line up for a COVID test, uh, you can line up to vote. And then when everyone shared it, including me, saying this is outrageous, they were like, ha ha, we're trending number four. We are cry more libs. And yeah, it is a deliberate strategy. And I don't know, again, I don't know what the right answer is because as you say, if you ignore it, okay, you're not amplifying their trolling. But by ignoring it, it comes back to my point we made just a moment ago with Dick Durbin is, are you then pretending that we live in a normal political reality? Are we are not enough people aware of the fact? And Brian, you and I spend all our time on Twitter. We spend all our time arguing about politics. The average American doesn't. They don't have a clue about how extreme Marjorie Taylor Greene and these people are. They just think, and they might see her one night on nightly news or one clip on Facebook. Ah, she's a bit crazy. They don't understand. No, no, this is the vanguard of a neo-fascist movement that wants to take over democracy in America. This is a bunch of anti-Semites and Islamophobes and anti-black racists some of these people are. Um, and it's just, you know, it's really depressing. It's like with Trump. It was, a, it was always a debate with Donald Trump when he was in office, at least. Less so since he left office with his kind of weird statements. Now he's not on social media. But when he was in office, it was always a debate. Do you amplify this latest crazy tweet from Trump or not? On the one hand, don't give him the attention he so bizarrely seeks to deflect away from other more substantive issues. On the other hand, he's the president of the United States. Everything he says is newsworthy, especially when it's crazy. So, uh, you know, there is no right answer. I think what you can do is, I think you can ignore some of the more, you know, I, I think what we have to do is, here's, here's how I try and thread the needle, not successfully how I try and do it on my show, which is cover the stuff that genuinely is scary, that genuinely is crossing lines, and is from genuinely political. Politically powerful, influential people. The problem we now have is we have a bunch of kind of, you know, you have the Daily Wire guys, and you have, you know, you have the Ben Shapiro and his and his stooges and bag carriers. You have the, you know, candidates running for office, trying to primary people, these Republican nobodies. They're all trying to say outrageous things. There, I would say, yeah, don't amplify them. Don't give them. Yeah, they are pure attention. But with a Marjorie Taylor Greene, with a Matt Gates, with a with a Senator Ron Johnson, you know, when Senator Ron Johnson says. Oh, yeah, use mouthwash and gargle away the COVID. Uh, I mean, it's a ridiculous statement. I think you have to cover it. The United States Senator is saying absolutely mad stuff that would get him fired from most jobs, or at least people would move several steps away from him in a public train or bus. Um, this guy's running for the Senate. He's running for re-election. That's the kind of stuff that people need to know. So it's, it's a really difficult balancing act. It's, it's who you choose to amplify. It's how you choose to amplify them. There's, I, I'm guilty of this. Don't just quote tweet, take a screenshot of some of the advice people say, but I don't do that myself. I should. Um, also, here's one thing I would say about quote unquote, you know, mainstream reporters who cover this. What frustrates me most is 
put aside the amplifying, not amplifying debate. Once you have amplified them, then what? Because the two, for too often, Brian, we will say this congresswoman said something crazy and then it's buried in the memory hole. And then we wait for the next one and there's no context. For me, context is everything. So when Marjorie Taylor Greene, you talk about Marjorie Taylor Greene, every conversation Marjorie Taylor Greene needs to start with, oh yeah, she's the person who made anti-Semitic remarks and uh, talked about killing Nancy Pelosi. That should be the context. What, what you know, the, the, the phrase is used, the truth sandwich. Start with the truth, then say what the lie is, then start with the truth. That applies to people too. Start with the truth about who that person is, then let them say their nonsense, then remind people who they are. Um, mm. Same applies to, you know, someone like Paul Gosar. Every conversation about Paul Gosar needs to start with Paul Gosar, who went to a white nationalist conference with Holocaust deniers like Nick Fuentes. That needs to be part of every conversation. And I would extend that. Kevin McCarthy, House Republican leader, who gives cover to anti-Semites and Islamophobes in his caucus. Like, we need to have that. What the problem we have is reporters do a great job of on the day saying, Mr. McCarthy, Paul Gosar went to a conference. Do you have any comment? No. And then they'll never ask it again. My point is, why do we forget this stuff? Why do we give them a pass? It was like, same thing with Trump. It was always year zero. We always reset every day. And my point is, like, I was just thinking about this yesterday. We did a story on Thursday night about uh, child separation and how the kids were taken out the water. That was the biggest story in America for two months in 2018. It, caught, it was globally the biggest story in the world at one point. It was, you know, seen as the low point of the Trump presidency until the next one. But think about it now, Brian. Does anyone talk about child separation? Does anyone talk about accountability for what happened? Does anyone talk about where's Kirsten Nielsen now? Does anyone ever ask Donald Trump about it in all the multiple post-election books? We just moved on. And this is my fundamental problem. Like, forget the amplifying debate. They're going to get amplified. As you say, they've got their own echo chamber. What are the rest of us going to do to hold them to account? Yeah, I think that's a great point. We'll, we'll leave it there. Mehdi, where can, where can my viewers and listeners uh, see more of you? Um, if they want to see more of me, I'm on every night from 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern live on Peacock, uh, NBC streaming channel. And I'm on Sunday nights live on MSNBC, 8 p.m. Eastern. So do tune in. And Brian, appreciate you having me on. Of course. Well, thank you. Thank you for answering the biggest questions in politics today. I'm glad we could, glad we could solve all of this stuff. We solved the, all the on issues. The show. Yeah. yeah. All right, Manny. Thanks so much. Cheers. This is one of the best platforms for entrepreneurs, growth marketers, operators, and those that are looking to scale their business. Yes, I'm talking about... Midterms. That's astonishing. The party should have been ostracized. This party should have been yeah. dead politically after half a million dead Americans and an insurrection. Instead, they're back within a year, ready to take over again. Astonishing. Well, that's actually the perfect segue into my next question. And that is that in this current media environment, it's basically Republicans lie about something, about the big lie, about federal takeover of elections, about COVID, vaccines, whatever it is. And the rest of us, you know, myself, you spend all of our time and resources debunking those lies, which no one on the right even sees because it's a closed feedback loop. But it doesn't change the fact that Republicans are driving the narrative here and that Democrats are solely on defense. So how does that ever change in an environment where Republicans have no screw? Tyler Cohen, I'm tagging. 
and posting to Twitter. The last words, right? And spelled word wrong. And let's see. Maybe it's not that. Have no scruples, and there's actually incentive to lie. These are big questions, Brian. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I grapple with. Just, I'm just asking you to just solve solve the biggest I know. issues. I, in, I, in I grapple with right these now. issues every day, On and I can podcast. be honest with you and your viewers and listeners. I don't come to any easy answers. I think we're in a very dangerous and dark place for American we're democracy, for American, not just American democracy. When we think American democracy, we think of election. I'm talking about this country as a whole. I mean, we're now having people talking about civil war. I don't think a civil war is around the corner. But the fact that we're even having the discussion tells you everything we need to know. You know, we have people like Barbara Walter, a political scientist who came on my show recently to talk about how she's an expert on civil war, saying America is closer to another civil war than it's ever been since the last one. You know, that is where we are as a country. One of the main reasons we're in this position is because of misinformation, is because. All right. Mm, transgender rights last week tonight with John Oliver. Okay, um, I'm gonna watch that later. And go on to PBS NewsHour. Watch Representative Raskin says Trump saw the bloody attack unfold but did not act fast enough on January 6th. Saw. That's just not, not just didn't act fast enough, he didn't act at all. Idiots. Save to watch later, The Dark Mysteries of Ireland's Haunted Ruins, The Dead Sea Scrolls. Save to watch later, so that you know what is coming up. Sidebar comedy. That actually did really well last time I covered sidebar comedy. Oh, it's live, Maggie Hagerman. Some of it you're just deciding moment to moment. Those later questions that you're referring to, which are in the book, were a bunch of additional fact checks that I got reporting on later, um, and that I needed to come back and give give him a chance to. Are all January sixth? GOP terrorists from holding public office.
Um, and in some cases, you know, he was the only person who could answer. And so in one case, he appeared to confirm, for instance, that he had sent money to the family of a convicted felon who had helped him on one of his earliest building projects, which has been a great mystery in New York City politics for a long time. So that was interesting. Um, he called almost every other question fake news, fantasy question. Um, fantasy question was one over and over and over again, you know, not true, et cetera, et cetera. The things he chose to confirm were that he had um, he had gone with Marla Maples to a Michael Bolton concert after he won her back from seeing Michael Bolton, who, who she was having a relationship with at the same time or, you know, in, in contrast to Trump. And the other that he confirmed was, uh, said actually some truth to that, was that he used to refer to his uh, not yet wife, Melania Trump, as out of central casting. Those were the things he chose to confirm. Yeah. What? Yeah, she is, isn't he? Or she is, isn't she? Or something like, or it's true. It was actually, actually some truth to that. Yeah, there's actually some truth to that. Um, <clears throat> one other thing from those interviews, um, you, uh, you asked him about the classified documents before it was a news story and there was some like scuttlebutt on Twitter. So that was BS, right? Because it seemed to me that if you listen to the audio, it seems obvious that you just are kind of asking on a lark, right? And he right. like answers with total word salad. But what, what made you think that he might have taken classified documents? Like, sure. was it, were you on a tip or just gut? No, I didn't. And I didn't ask about classified documents. And I, I appreciate how you just described the audio because I really hope people listen to it because it really, it's about as clear as mud, to your point. Um, but no, it's that I asked because um, I just know him and know he's a hoarder. And he was obsessed with, you know, trophies like the Kim Jong-un letters yeah. like he he would wave them around in front of reporters he would ask somebody to bring them in and he'd spread them out across the resolute desk and so I asked you know did you take anything with you and the other the other thing that was going on at the time was that um my colleague Mike Schmidt was um doing a lot of reporting on um gifts that Trump or that during the Trump White House era that had gone missing like presidential gifts that had disappeared and they were trying to figure out what was happening. So anyway, so that was why I asked the question. And his response was, he said, nothing of great urgency, no. And so he hears me denying it. And then he says something about the KJU letters. I, I couldn't even understand what he was saying. But it seemed like he was saying maybe he had them. And I was sort of surprised and said, oh, you were able to take those with you? And he said, uh, he said, he clearly registered my my surprise. And he said, no, uh, I think those are in the archives. You know, we have great things. It, it was meaningless but he it's like he started to say something and then caught himself and then took it back yeah i just uh it was interesting because it was like your it was the maggie spidey sense that's kind of what i wanted to ask about it right you didn't say specifically classified documents but it was oh. just this sense it never would have occurred it would never yeah. would have occurred to me that he'd taken classified right, right exactly exactly i just wanted to correct myself on that i wanted to more, yeah more talk about the maggie spidey sense okay one other thing about the book and then we're going to a few rapid fire questions from me in the crowd um the rudy chapter i just I, I just we couldn't get out of here without you talking about that the Rudy Trump relationship why he sort of lets him sort of run roughshod around the White House in a way that other people didn't do you think that's also related to the New York backstory and, and reverence for him or just sort of talk about that relationship because Rudy ended up causing a lot of trouble for Trump that he didn't need and yet still is around I guess right is he still around I guess you would know ish I mean ish I, you know it's it's Trump is nice to him but Trump rolls his eyes at him a lot. Look, um, they were not friends in New York, okay? I mean, they, they really, um, 
Trump, Trump was a donor. Trump was someone who Giuliani wanted to keep on his side. Giuliani was seen as very helpful with one Trump project in particular on the east side near the UN when he was mayor. Um, when uh, Giuliani was running for president, um, I don't think Trump was even really around. I think Don Jr. did something for him uh, as a fundraising uh, uh, you know, event but, or, or donation, but that was it. Um, and then when Trump was um, running himself, I think Giuliani, you know, sort of saw the attention he was getting when Trump did this tweet, this retweet of somebody who was insulting Heidi Cruz, Ted Cruz's wife, mm-hmm. by putting a picture of her next to Melania Trump and saying a picture's worth a thousand words. And it was a very unflattering picture of Heidi Cruz. Um, Giuliani started telling people, I can't endorse him after that. This was around April 2016. So that lasted about, you know, four months until the Access Hollywood tape. And then suddenly Giuliani saw the opportunity to advance himself. And he, you know, became became this constant fighter for Trump. And that Trump doesn't value anything more than he values a fighter. So that's how. And Giuliani badly wanted to be Secretary of State. Um, Jared Kushner, among other people, blocked it. I think the people who blocked it still feel pretty good about having blocked it uh, for a variety of reasons. Um, And Giuliani did not want another job. And so Giuliani then proceeded to pop up at various points. And when Trump was in real potential jeopardy, when Michael Cohen, another lawyer for him, was searched by the FBI and was clearly under investigation, Giuliani was the one who counseled, let's take a tougher approach. And Trump valued that. And so that's how Giuliani stays around but you know he's willing to endure trump's petty humiliations you know just like a number of other people why because uh it gives him power trump this isn't in the book but giuliani kept saying to people um after um, january 6th when it was clear that there was going to be another impeachment trial most likely he kept saying to people i need to be his lawyer and i think that sums it up um, I wanted to move on to, to, to Tim conspiracy theories, but one thing you brought up uh, uh, adds to something else in the book uh, that should be mentioned. The because uh, you, you, it's an interesting nugget and just left me wanting a little more. And in a twenty-seven hundred-page book, like that's pretty, that's pretty important. And that is. Um, I hope you all noticed that it gained nine hundred pages. <laughs> <laughs> just a bit. Um, uh, Kushner, uh, Trump wanted to fire Kushner. It wasn't just yeah. Rudy wanted to get rid Trump wanted to fire the Kushner and, and Ivanka. Now, he never fired anybody. This is another one of your correct observations in the book. That was all just a, a farce from the show. But but he wanted Kelly to do it. What like what came like what was that all about? Like what came of that? Right? Why you know was that something that came and go came and went? Or what was what was your sense of that story? It came and went a lot during 2017 because Jared Kushner was getting some really negative headlines in relation to the Mueller investigation, uh, as well as the fact that he and his wife had used a uh, private email server, which Trump was very upset about because, uh, you know, as, as people might recall, <laughs> Trump made a thing of that in 2016 with his opponent. Uh, and so they were just, you know, it was it looked like Jared was it was a focus of Mueller. Um, you know, at least uh, under intense scrutiny. And there was a, dis- a feeling that it would be better if they left. And Trump just never wanted to do it himself. And so he he tried to get Kelly and Don McGahn, the White House counsel, to do it. 
and they protested and you know you're not going to back us if we do this and you know your your daughter comes to you and complains uh and then so there was finally this tweet that trump was ready to send saying they were leaving um and it, you know it would not have been it would have been in, in the nice grouping of trump people are leaving tweets right except just would have been his family um and kelly stopped him because he hadn't discussed it with them and you know Kelly, Kelly, Kelly strangely felt that's not how you treat your, your family. Um, and then Trump just didn't go ahead and deal with it. Um, all right. Uh, the t two Tim conspiracy questions. I want to do a quick rapid fire from the audience here. Um, and then we'll let you get your NyQuil. Um, uh, my conspiracies. One is he tried to kill Joe Biden with COVID in that first debate intentionally, right? He knew he had COVID. He saw Joe Biden was old. And he was like, I'm going to go with COVID and I want him to get it. I want to give him COVID. I, I can't. I can't go with you there. <laughs> no, you don't think that that's right? You do think he knew he had COVID before the debate? I do. I, I think it's hard to imagine that he didn't know he had COVID. COVID yeah. the debate. But you don't think that he thought it was I don't like think a biological was, weapon? I don't think it was we're all going down to bed. Okay. I think um, he just didn't think that he was sick. The, the missing, um, this is where resistance Tim comes in, all right, so just bear with me. The missing minutes of the, you, you write about the Helsinki kind of back and forth, but there, there still is, I mean, he has this a lot of 20 minutes or whatever, pr private time with Putin and just translators. Like, what, yeah, yeah, more than that. So what is your sense for what was happening there? What did his advisors think was happening? Do we have any, any it's, it's odd that he has a seat, he's not good at secrets, right? Uh, no, he actually can be very good at secrets when they're his own. He's obsessed with other people's secrets, and he he will share other people's secrets. It's his own that he's actually pretty good at keeping. Um, so he's very good at compartmentalizing. I, it could be anything under the sun, Tim, but among the things that his own staff speculated heavily about, um, you know, that meeting was was one of them. Um, uh, the secret thing, last thing in my notes here, I did have this. Um, given that he is, okay, so he's good at keeping his own secrets, he's not good at keeping other people's secrets. I think one thing that, that gives me a little peace about the Trump administration is that all of like the worst secrets about America, the aliens, JFK killing, like we know all those conspiracies are not true at this point, right? Like he, if he had a good one, if he had a good one that he was briefed on, like he would have shared it by now. I think. So it's funny that you asked that. Um, <laughs> this isn't in the book, but I did ask. No, I asked him about UFOs and JFK yeah. <laughs> uh, because he he declassified a bunch of the JFK files, yeah. as you might recall, and then there was some issue where they weren't released. Um, but he told me that he. I wish I had the answer in front of me but he said i said did you did you look at those files and did you learn anything that changed how you look at the government and he said he never really looked at them because he wasn't particularly interested in either one of them and i don't think that's true about kennedy so um you know i believe he looked at that and i believe that um i believe that he's painfully aware of of circumstances surrounding you know, an assassinated president. So, um, but he didn't. But he didn't give it up. So the truth is still out there. Okay, some rapid fire from the crowd. Um, <clears throat> is there anything likable about Donald Trump? I mean, I feel like that's an, an, an in the eye of the beholder question. Um, he can he can be very charming. Uh, he actually can be funny. He he, uh, despite this, there's this belief that he doesn't laugh. He does laugh. Um, you know, but but this that's not the that's not the prevailing side. One thing that people answer that question with the likability question about is the family thing. And I I thought it was a noticeable um, absence from the book 
was Donald Trump the father, mm-hmm. um, at least when the kids were younger. There's a lot of talk about mm-hmm. the, you know, during the White House years. That is because that, that it was absent from the book because it was absent from his life at that time. It was or? absent from the book because it yeah, because it was complicated in his life and because it was really impossible to do a full portrait without spending much more time on it than I wanted to, frankly. Um, you know, I mean, he was, I, I think that people can draw their own conclusions when a father is, you know, battling with the mother on the front pages of the papers, yeah. um, you know, for a month. So. Uh, back to the, the audience questions uh, on this topic. Do Trump's kids know that he's lying? Uh, sometimes. What about, no. about the, what about the election? Oh, about the election? I mean, look, I, I suspect that some of them genuinely believe that he was cheated because I think that's how they all view the world. Yeah. Um, or many of them view the world. Um, you know, this has come up a lot about Ivanka Trump in particular since the January 6th hearings. But... Um, you know, I think that she tried to put some distance between herself and what he was saying. But if she didn't believe it, um, she didn't do a whole lot to stop it. So, yeah, um, three, three more uh, rapid questions from online and then we'll let you go. Um, which legal actions do you think worry him most? Uh, the documents investigation. Why? Because it's the one that is the most easy to distill and directly relates to him. Yeah. On January 6th, he can actually hide behind other people. Um, has Trump, in your experience in all those interviews, ever acknowledged any error or bad decision? Um, yes, actually, and it's in the book. He, it's pretty interesting, and that's a good question, and this is not going to be a rapid answer, so if you were looking that's for okay. that, I apologize. But um, uh, he talked about, he complained at length about endorsing, he, but basically he had gotten tricked into endorsing Ben Sass the Nebraska senator hmm. for his reelect, um, who, you know, is about to become uh, uh, a, a chancellor in Florida. Um, but he, he was talking about how, you know, uh, I think it was Lindsey Graham and Ted Cruz had gotten him to do this. And he said something like, like a schmuck, I went along with it. And it's rare to hear him say something like that. But it was interesting, both because it was acknowledging an error, number one, and number two, it goes to sort of his broader mindset about his presidency, which is that, like, he was tricked over and over again, that he was tricked into making, you know, X, Y, Z decision. He was tricked into hiring X, Y, Z people and that he's going to do it differently next time because he gets that now. I think it's the scariest part about the next administration, in my opinion, right, is, is less him per se than, than he did, did. That is, I think that's his big lesson, right, from the first administration, that too many personnel. people didn't trust, too many personnel, yeah. never Trump person. Yeah, person. I mean, per, everything with Donald Trump comes down to personnel. That's what he understands best. Um, who are the other Trump reporters you like the most? Jonathan Swan and Josh Dossie are, and, and Mike Bender are... Um, Amazing reporters. They're all killing up. I agree. Okay, the last one um, is, I think, the most important question. So I say to Plas, I'm so happy someone in the audience wrote this, because I would have asked it exactly like this, if not. As a mother of three, a wife, and an amazingly accomplished journalist, also an amazing mother, how, how's work-life balance going for you? <laughs> well, it's 10 p.m. my time, and I'm here with you. <laughs> so, um, it's not been my... Um, of, of accomplishments in my life, work-life balance has not been one of them. But, um, you know, one of these days. Well, I monitor your Instagram, and those kids love you. I don't know. I don't, I don't understand it. I'm getting texts from you. You're posted on Instagram. You're on CNN at the same time. Sometimes I do wonder if there are multiple Maggies. You're writing a 600-page book. So thank you so much for doing this. Thank you. I Thanks bow to you. Thank you.
Um, we could have uh, uh, we could have done two hours. Maggie, thanks for joining us today. Um, I want to thank our audience here in San Francisco and online around the country. Today's program will be available as a video and podcast on the club's website, www.commonwealthclub.org, to learn more. You can purchase copies of Maggie. Hey, guten Morgen, America. Wie geht's? Check this out. This is... I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network, and this is a breaking news alert. Over the weekend, Donald Trump took to his social media platform and wrote a number of horrific and horrible things. I'm going to cover one of them now, and we will do another hit on some of the other statements that he's made. Because it's just been a stream of consciousness, of hate, of lies, of dangerous disinformation. But it is vital that we call it out and we condemn it. And this post that he made relates to the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago. Donald Trump has been spreading a massive amount of disinformation about the National Archives, about the Presidential Records Act, about our nuclear secrets, which causes the highest degree of alarm. And let's just pull up this post right now. And in this post, Donald Trump says, NARA, the National Archives, has, quote, lost massive amounts of information from past presidents, including classified and nuclear secrets all over the place. And they don't care. They only care about going after, quote, Trump, even though we've done everything right, as per the Presidential Records Act and the Clinton Socks case. Again, so much disinformation here. Literally every single word is a lie. I want to focus on perhaps the most dangerous statement that he's made here where he says including classified and nuclear secrets all over the place lying that the national archives and our government has simply lost and distributed our highest guarded secrets our nuclear secrets all over the place completely false and this harkens back to reporting that we've had here on the Midas Touch Network and it's been reported elsewhere uh, that some of the records that were obtained during the August 8th search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago we already know those hundred classified records are the highest level of top secret classified compartmented information but there was other reporting here and elsewhere that they also involved nuclear secrets and recently at one of those fascist rallies that Donald Trump held he had accused the Department of Justice of potentially planting nuclear secrets at Mar-a-Lago and here in the statement his focus on nuclear secrets all over the place we know with Donald Trump's projection what this undoubtedly means um, is that he was holding nuclear secrets all over the place at Mar-a-Lago and likely to this day still has records at Bedminster and Trump Tower uh, and elsewhere and potentially photocopies of it. Let's just go through some of these other statements. I mean, uh, I've done everything right per the Presidential Records Act. You've literally done everything wrong per the Presidential Records Act. And by the way, if you think you did everything right per the Presidential Records Act, the Presidential Records Act has a provision that any disputes related to the Presidential Records Act must be filed in the District Court of the District Columbia. So you even filed in the wrong court so you could get your stooge judge, Eileen Cadden, who doesn't know what the hell she's doing, and she's uh, very quickly about to be overturned again 
again by the 11th Circuit with the expedited briefing by the Department of Justice, but you literally did not do everything pursuant to the Presidential Records Act. In fact, you did everything the opposite of the Presidential Records Act. The Presidential Records Act doesn't allow a former president to steal government records and hide them in their weird resort home period. To the extent there are disputes over potential personal records, presidential records, um, you can't steal government records. The Presidential Records Act has a uh, provision, which basically says to the extent you dispute any of the classifications, to the, the documents are first with the archives. You don't steal them, go around the Presidential Records Act, force the National Archives to go discover it through a Department of Justice investigation and a grand jury subpoena that you then have lawyers submit false declarations under penalty of perjury, cause them to have to execute a search warrant and find that you were indeed engaged an obstruction of justice, okay? That is the exact opposite, the most egregious violations of the Presidential uh, Records Act. But again, to the extent you believe the Presidential Records Act was even at play, the Presidential Records Act says any disputes over documents that once the National Archives has, if you're somehow claiming, oh, I got a personal document mixed up in what you're claiming to be the government records, that dispute goes through a district court proceeding in Washington, D.C. You know, one of the things Trump is also obsessed with is this Clinton socks case. But, you know, Trump always spreads this information. The Clinton socks case that he references, that person, Finton, you, you've heard that name, Finton, and it runs that organization, Judicial Watch. Finton is not a lawyer. We learned recently at the January 6th committee as well that Finton was intimately involved in uh, some of the plans related to the January 6th insurrection. Well, Finton brought this lawsuit against the National Archives and against Bill Clinton like 10 years ago. So like 20 years after Clinton left the office or like 30 years after Clinton left the office, Finton filed this frivolous lawsuit, this civil lawsuit against the National Archives and the court uh, dismissed it. And the case involved President Clinton's autobiography and whether Bill Clinton's notes that were related to his autobiography that he kept in a drawer um, were was whether that was a violation of the Presidential Records Act. That's what Finton sued. The court dismissed the lawsuit, one, because it was filed 25 or 30 years late. Also, that has nothing to do with classified records. I mean, there are very, very, very small exceptions where if a president is, for example, writing an autobiography or if a president is engaged in personal uh, types of stuff. You could designate it as personal. But this Finton lawsuit, Finton, the case was basically dismissed as being frivolous. It has nothing to do with stealing top secret classified records and nuclear secrets or stealing government records at all. The case is completely different. It wasn't even a criminal case. Um, and here, the conduct at issue, again, let's not forget, Donald Trump stole tens of thousands of classified records and hundreds of records that we know of 
that have the highest level of classification within our government. Top secret, classified, compartmented information that have to be viewed in SCIFs, which are these special locations for these classified records to even be reviewed. And he kept them, he hid them, he lied to the government when the government uh, requested these documents back, and then when he lied to them, when the government issued a grand jury subpoena, so complete lies. And then he goes, NARA has lost massive amounts of information from past presidents including classified and nuclear secrets all over the place and they don't care they only care about going after trump now one of the things that he like attaches because i guess he hopes that people don't even like read the things that he's um uh you know posting and just either read the headline and that's why it's very dangerous what the media does sometimes when they don't delve and dig into the issues because if you actually even read this article that he posts to, which is um, like a like a law review article or like just an, an academic piece about, you know, and this was written many, many, many years ago about how the National Archives can do a better job cataloging their records. It talks nothing about losing nuclear secrets, number one, but it also talks about potential violations of the Espionage Act and says that no one here in regarding the situation that was being talked about in the article were actually engaged in espionage and that Espionage Act crimes need to be prosecuted and are incredibly serious and talked about how the National Archives should, and this was written many, many, many years ago, needs to do a better job making sure it reaches out to presidents and reaches out to former presidents to do a better job cataloging, which it took the recommendations and did, especially with the uh, Obama administration, with uh, George W. Bush, with um, Trump and Trump just stole the records and stole our top secret classified information. So, again, all lies, all disinformation. Um, but going back to this idea of nuclear secrets all over the place raises another red flag right here that Donald Trump likely has nuclear secrets all over the place at Mar-a-Lago and probably still has that today. That's the type of projection we see from him. And again, this post that was done on uh, his social media company, it's after he wrote that dangerous and deranged manifesto on Friday to Benny Thompson, the chair of the January 6th committee, after Trump was subpoenaed by the January 6th committee during the Thursday hearing and he called them the unselects and talked about hoax and talked about Antifa and BLM. It was the rantings and ravings of a lunatic, but as we've covered here on the Midas Touch Network, that letter that Trump wrote to Benny Thompson also goes to Trump's intent regarding all of Donald Trump's criminality in connection with election interference of 2020. It would further go to buttress the January 6th arguments that Donald Trump has waived any potential claim of executive privilege in an interbranch governmental disputes. Of course, a former president can't assert executive privilege with the current executive. There are some small, small exceptions where a past executive could potentially claim executive privilege regarding an interbranch dispute, in this case one between a former executive and the Congress co-equal branches, but where there is a crime fraud in place, the crime fraud exception, or where there is a public disclosure by a former executive of certain facts, 
you can't claim any confidential executive privilege, which is supposed to protect confidential, deliberative communications by former, by presidents, by executives engaged in actually following the law. And when you talk about things publicly, it waves and vitiates um, any claim because what the January 6th committee will simply say is, we want to ask you questions about things that you've already publicly said. We want to ask you questions about the letter, what you've said at these fascist rallies and at other places. Donald Trump just continues to build the evidence against himself. This is a dangerous and deranged individual who needs to be prosecuted soon. But as you know, by following the Midas Touch Network, I do have confidence in the Department of Justice. I have confidence in Merrick Garland. And if you want to know just where my confidence comes from, just look at what took place during the search warrant executed at Mar-a-Lago and where we are today. Donald Trump is playing checkers, and not only was Merrick Garland playing chess, but he was 20 to 30 moves ahead at all times, knowing all the obstruction that Donald Trump was going to do, including having contingencies for Donald Trump, finding a Trump-appointed stooge judge like Judge Eileen Cannon, who could make corrupt rulings, and how the Department of Justice would surgically first get their classified records back, then move for an expedited appeal, which is now before the 11th Circuit, um, and basically checkmate Trump and the corrupt judge. We'll keep you posted here on the Midas Touch Network as more information develops. Um, another post that he made as well, we're going to cover here as well, an incredibly d disturbing post. He's just on a rant of, a spiraling rant of, uh, of dangerous posts. Until next time, I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. Hey, hit the subscribe button right now. We are on our way to 1 million subscribers with your support. Also, if you want to support us on Patreon, check us out at patreon.com slash Midas Touch. No matter where you are in the world, become a member of Patreon. Exclusive membership packages, behind-the-scenes footage. You could become an honorary producer of our podcast and more. But most importantly, help grow this independent media channel. We have no outside investors, and it's a good way to help grow this channel. Until next time, I'm Ben Micellis from the Midas Touch Network. At Midas Touch, we are unapologetically pro-democracy, and we demand justice and accountability. That's why we're spreading our message to Convict 45. That's right. Gear up right now with your Convict 45 tees and pins at store.midastouch.com. That's store.midastouch.com. I'm Adrian Fontes, and I know what it's like to make important decisions. I made the decision to protect our country by enlisting in the Marine Corps. I made the decision to become an attorney and prosecutor. And I made my best decision when I became a father. I decided to become county recorder to make voting safer and easier. Now we have a decision to make. Our elections should not be controlled by extremists. Vote Fontes for Secretary of State because democracy is a decision. Paid for by Fontes for Arizona, authorized by Adrian Fontes. concerned about what happens in 2022 because if the republicans win back the house or gain more seats in the senate um i think it at that point it's over um i act I, I hate saying that but i believe it's true so we need to focus on that if if we're lucky and democrats increase their margins um preferably in the senate um then yeah then 2024 becomes the next most important election of our lifetime. 
I think, as I was saying to Molly earlier, uh, I believed immediately after the election that he wouldn't run again because he'd been so humiliated. And then the Republicans proved themselves to be even more craven than I gave them credit for and have enabled him to retain power, to um, remain influential, and are also uh, behind the scenes, uh, God knows what's happening, but out in the open, they are in every state uh, trying to enact voter suppression laws aimed squarely at preventing um, Democratic-leaning voters from voting. So if they can um, rig the system in only three states against us and therefore make it impossible for Democrats to win statewide elections in Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, for example, then Donald would run because he wouldn't be able to lose. And he needs the powers and protections of the Oval Office. He needs them and he knows he needs them. So we need to hope for the first time in this country's history that a powerful white man who committed egregious crimes against his country and against the people of his country is held accountable. Whether he, he needs to go to prison, but not sure that's going to happen. He needs to be uh, impoverished. He needs to be kept from running for office again. You know, there is there the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment makes it impossible for insurrectionists to run for public office. That needs to be invoked. Um, so, and there's also the question of his health. He's not a young, he's, he's an old 74 and he's in terrible shape. So, um, you know, I, there's, and he's very mental. He has serious mental illness, uh, which is untreated. What's so, your diagnosis of them? I'm sorry. What's your diagnosis of them? Um, I don't diagnose him because I kind of technically I can't. But we just need to look at his behavior to know that, um, you know, whether it's it's technically this or not, he, he's an incredibly antisocial person. Rules don't apply to him. He lies. He's a uh, prolific liar. Uh, he lies with without compunction. Sorry, with compunction. I don't remember. Anyway, he lies a lot and has no no qualms about doing so. And he's cruel. He has no empathy. And as I've been saying for a while, uh, and I know, Molly, you have too, um, he will, if he feels threatened, and we're seeing how this is playing out, he will do anything in his power to take all of us down with him. So whether he's a sociopath or a malignant narcissist or something else, um, we are at still unbelievably at the mercy of a person who literally doesn't care if we live or die, unless we support him. We have a question from the audience. Do you think that democracy will still be here in 20 years? Uh, that depends entirely on what happens uh, between now and 2024. It really does. We either get through 2024 uh, with a uh, democracy shaken, <laughs> weakened, but intact to the extent that it ever has been. And we do the work 
to uh, shore it up in ways that it really has always needed to be, you know, expanding the franchise to everybody who's eligible to vote. Um, and failing that, uh, no, the democracy won't be here in 20 years. And I'm not sure what would be because um, for the United States to become uh, an autocracy would be devastating to the entire planet. And this is a question that is pretty popular in the YouTube chat, but it was also one of my questions. And that is, uh, will you ever consider running for public office? Um, I'm going to say something really political right now. Uh, I have no plans <laughs> to run. Um, honestly, I, I don't know simply because I, I'd never thought about it. Um, and so when I am asked that question, I can't, I can't say no, cause I've never really given it that much thought. Uh, what I will say, however, first of all, I live in New York. So what good, what good, what good would it do? Um, there, there are plenty of people, uh, with my politics writing for things who have more experience than I have. Um, but for now, I like, I really like what I'm doing. Um, I have a lot of opportunities to do things that I would never have been able to do before. And I also think that at the, the moment I'm more effective on the outside. Um, you know, I don't, I never have to pull punches. Um, I'm not beholden to anybody. And I mean, obviously any, any decent person with integrity, who's a politician shouldn't do those things either. Um, but you know, it's also, it, it wouldn't really leave me a room to do much else if I were, um, in politics. So, um, yeah, I, I like, I like being on the outside, honestly. The new Woodward book reveals that Vice President Mike Pence was talked out of going along with Donald Trump's coup by none other than Dan Quayle. Did Dan Quayle save democracy? No. <laughs> no, but, you know, credit for standing up and saying, because all he did was tell Mike Pence the tr truth about the situation he was in. There was nothing he could do. Um, and I think I'm, I'm guessing Pence also spoke to other people because he was probably trying to find somebody who would tell him what he wanted to hear, which is, yeah, sure. You can overturn the results of the election. Um, but I, I think it's hysterical that it's Dan Quayle. Um, I hope his spelling has gotten better since, uh, last we heard from him, but, uh, no. And in fact, I'm still not sure democracy has been saved at all, but. Anyway, just a couple more questions before we turn it back to Molly for her final questions. Uh, are you optimistic or pessimistic about our future as a country? Yeah, I, I, I can't be pessimistic. Um, we need, as hard as it is, <laughs> we need to hang on to hope. And as I said earlier, we, we did something extraordinary in November. Um, you know, we were well on our way to a very dark place. And we ended up with Joe Biden as our president and Kamala Harris as our vice president. That is not nothing. So um, I, I am hopeful. Also, I think hanging on to hope allows us to stay connected and energized. Like if, if we think it's hopeless, then why bother? You know, we all need to we all need to bother. Like we need to vote in such overwhelming numbers in 2022 just for things to be even because 
the system is so stacked against us with gerrymandering and voter suppression and the electoral college, etc. So, um, you know, there's no reason to give up yet. There's not. So I know it's hard, especially because of COVID, but, you know, we need to hang in there and realize, remind yourselves every day, there are so many more of us than there are of them. It's a great segue to the last and final question from our audience uh, and our YouTube chat here. Um, Mary, how can we best continue the fight without getting burnt out? Even though that's what you just said. <laughs> I know it's hard, but keep going. Uh, what would you recommend for emotional sustenance in this long protracted battle that we're all in? Um, I, well, I said earlier, you know, it's really important to stay connected and realize that we're not alone. I, I know that's been very hard been hard for me last year and a half not to feel that uh at times but you know do things like this join other um online communities if if you can or in-person ones if they exist where you are and they're safe um do take care of yourself i i know that sounds basic um but it's hard under these circumstances you know, it's hard to eat properly and exercise when there's so much awfulness going on around us. Um, but those are really important. I mean, it's not just because you'll you'll feel better physically, but you'll feel better emotionally and psychologically as well. Um, so the other thing I would also say is you don't have to be informed about everything all the time. You know, it's hard to, to just listen to the bad, it's all bad news, right? So if you need to tap out, tap out for a while refresh you know uh re-energize and understand that you know we we all are going to have each other's backs here and we're not going to do anybody including ourselves any good if we burn out right um so and and there are also things that you can do that don't expose you to the toxicity all the time you know do uh voter registration drives do stuff like that you know Thank you so much. I'll turn it back over to Molly for your final thoughts and questions. We got about five minutes left. Uh, I want to say one last thing I want to add to what you just said, because I mm -hmm. think it was good, but also run for your school board. Mm. I mean, they, those they are the craziest people in the world are running for your school board. So it's really good. I mean, I don't think it will be the relaxing moment of zen that you need to tap i mean i think mary has a very good point though about like tapping out for mental health you know i'm i i pay a lot of attention to what's going on but i give myself like this summer i took like a week where i just like didn't even know what was happening you know and i was just with my teenagers and and uh and i think that was very relaxing because teenagers are very relaxing as you and i both know it's just very and they're also delightful and they say very nice things to you about what a great parent you are um constantly yeah it's a really good humbling exercise um but i do think that it's a really good point that we have to take care of our mental health it does feel very kind of crushing and scary and and i would also say like uh voter registration is how democrats won georgia Voter registration is like a really big part of this whole thing. And Stacey Abrams and Latasha Brown from Black Voters Matter, like those two women and, and their and all of the volunteers 
that they assembled really did do a lot of voter registration. So while voter registration feels like calming because it is not like a terrifying, uh, you know, kind of Jerry Springer show, you know, event, it actually is very useful. And I think that's really important. Yeah, um, and it's good to have a sense of agency, right? You're doing yeah. something productive. Yeah, it's really good. I I want to uh, ask you one last question. If you feel, what, what is the thing that you want people to take away from this book? Um, I think I want people to understand in, in a really deep way that the only way for us to heal, whether it's personally or as a country, is to be honest uh, and to take responsibility where necessary. Um, you know, especially white people take their privilege for granted to the extent that they don't even know it exists most of the time. And a lot of people don't admit it exists ever. And somehow uh, taking responsibility for things has, has fallen out of fashion. Um, so if we want to get better as, as a country, we, and by we, uh, right now I'm just talking to the majority of white people, um, we need to take responsibility, not, yes, I didn't, you know, I'm not responsible for slavery, no, but I need to be very honest about the fact that I've benefited from a system mm -hmm. that privileges whiteness, yes. right? Um, so if I fail to take responsibility for that, then I'm contributing to the problem. I'm perpetuating the the evils that have gotten us to this point. So um, there's nothing harder or more uh, productive and useful than looking in the mirror and being honest with yourselves. And that's what we all need to do. Um, Mary, I'm so glad I got to do this and I'm so uh, grateful to call you a friend. I just Thanks. am. So Molly, thank this is awesome. I was so happy you were able to be here with me. And Michelle, thank you so much and everybody um, for putting this together. This was this was awesome. Pick up a copy of your book today, The Reckoning, Our Nation's Trauma and Finding a Way to Heal. Thank you to Mary Trump and Molly Jong Fast for this very open conversation. Thank you to all of you for joining us here and the Commonwealth Club of California for providing the platform to find out more programs, more information about the Commonwealth Club, head to commonwealthclub.org. Enjoy the rest of your evening, your day. Take care of yourself. Stay strong. Stay healthy. We'll see you next time.
our rights, our climate, our future. Go to IWillVote.com. Special report. I'm Nora O'Donnell in Washington, and as you can see, we are just moments away from what could be the final January 6th hearing. We expect to hear stunning new evidence today, also seen never-before-seen video, and we are just learning that the Secret Service has turned over more than a billion, excuse me, a million records, documents which could give some very important context about January 6th and the days leading up to the riot. It's also important to remember what these hearings are about. Did the president of the United States, Donald Trump, conspire to overthrow the government? Now, the government, the committee, I should say, has been hoping to prove that he did. Also note the backdrop of today's hearing. It's important, too. We are just a few weeks away from the midterm elections, and the January 6th committee believes there is an ongoing threat to democracy. We have our team of correspondents who has been diving into all the new details that we're about to hear. Let's bring in senior investigative correspondent Catherine Harridge. This has been this outstanding item, the cooperation of the Secret Service, even though they've turned over more than a million documents. Is it what we want? What the committee investigators wanted were the text messages, sort of the real-time communications on January 6th. What they got in the end was over a million records, including emails, and my contacts say it builds this mosaic of what was happening leading up to and then after January 6th, specifically the potential for violence and that it was understood that the president's supporters were armed that day. And in the last few minutes, Nora, we have some new information that there was a specific Select warning to a member of the president's security first. detail that the situation was unraveling and they wanted confirmation that President Trump would not travel to the Capitol as the riots unfolded. All right. What did the president know? What did the team around him know? Why did they fail to prevent this violence? The bigger questions here still remain, John. They do. And what's so important about the Secret Service is that it corroborates testimony of previous witnesses. So what you yeah. want to do in these instances is to get as many people telling you the same story as possible. And these are the ones who are telling this key thing, which is that the president knew there was hot danger and did not only do nothing about it, he welcomed it. Let's listen now to the chairman of the committee, Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi. Would wrongly assume that the committee's investigation was a partisan exercise. That's why I asked those who were skeptical of our work to simply to listen, to listen to the evidence, to hear the testimony with an open mind, and to let the facts speak for themselves before reaching any judgment. Over the course of these hearings, the evidence has proven that there were a multi-part plan led by former President Donald Trump to overturn the 2020 election. Donald Trump lost his bid for re-election, as shown from the testimony of some of the president's closest allies and advisors. Donald Trump knew he lost. Despite this knowledge, Donald Trump went to court to contest the 2020 election, and he lost in court. The Electoral College met and declared Joe Biden the winner, yet Donald Trump continued to pull out all the stops in his attempt to stay in power. What Donald Trump proceeded to do after the 2020 election 
is something no president has done before in our country. In a staggering betrayal of his oath, Donald Trump attempted a plan that led to an attack on a pillar of our democracy. It's still hard to believe. But the facts and testimony are clear, consistent, and undisputed. How do we know this? How have we been able to present such a clear picture of what took place? Because of the testimony we've heard and that we have presented to you through these proceedings, because of the documentary evidence we've gathered and also made available directly to you, the American people, when you look back at what has come out through this committee's work, the most striking fact is that all this evidence come almost entirely from Republicans. The evidence that has emerged did not come from Democrats or opponents of Donald Trump. Instead, look at who's written and testified and produced evidence. Who has that been? Aides who've worked loyally for Donald Trump for years, Republican state officials and legislators, Republican electors, the chairwoman of the Republican National Committee, political professionals who worked at the highest levels of the Trump campaign, Trump appointees who served in the most senior positions in the Justice Department, President Trump's staff and closest advisors in the White House, members of the President Trump's family, his own White House counsel. I've served in Congress a long time. I can tell you it's tough for any congressional investigation to obtain evidence like what we've received, least of all such a detailed view into a president's inner circle. And I want to be clear, not all these witnesses were thrilled to talk to us. Some up put up quite a fight, but ultimately the vast majority cooperated with our investigation. And what we've shown you over the last four months has been centered on the evidence, evidence that has come overwhelmingly from Republican witnesses. So I say to you again, as I did in June, this investigation is not about politics. It's not about party. It's about the facts, plain and simple. And it's about making sure our government functions under the rule of law as our Constitution demands. Today, as in previous proceedings, my colleagues and I will present new evidence. That includes new testimony from additional Republicans who served in the Trump administration, never before seen footage of congressional leaders on January 6th working to coordinate the response to the violence and ensure the people's business went forward. New materials produced to the committee by the Secret Service, details about the ongoing threat to American democracy. Today's proceeding will also be grounded in the facts, but it won't look exactly like all our other hearings. We'll also take a step back and look at the evidence in a broader context, providing a summary of key facts we've uncovered. Facts relevant to former President Trump's state of mind about his motivation and about his intent. What did President Trump know? What was he told? What was his personal and substantial role in the multi-part plan to overturn the election? 
For those of you who watched our prior hearings, some of this evidence will look familiar. For those of you tuning in for the first time, we'll summarize some of the most important facts, and we'll urge you to go online and watch our hearing in full. There's one more difference about today. Pursuant to the notice circulated prior to today's proceedings, we are convened today not as a hearing, but as a formal committee business meeting so that in addition to presenting evidence, we can potentially hold a committee vote on further investigative action based upon that evidence. Before we get to that evidence, I'd recognize our distinguished vice chair, Ms. Cheney of Wyoming, for any opening statement she cared to offer. Thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Much has happened since our last public hearing on July 21st. As the chairman mentioned, we've received new and voluminous documentation from the Secret Service, which we continue to analyze. We've received new witness testimony, including about efforts to obstruct our investigation and conceal key facts. And according to public reporting, the Department of Justice has been very active in pursuing many of the issues identified in our prior hearings. Our committee may ultimately decide to make a series of criminal referrals to the Department of Justice, but we recognize that our role is not to make decisions regarding prosecution. The preamble to our Constitution recites, among its purposes, to, quote, establish justice. And our nation's judiciary and our U.S. Department of Justice have that responsibility. A key element of this committee's responsibility is to propose reforms to prevent January 6th from ever happening again. We've already proposed, and the House has now passed, a bill to amend the Electoral Count Act to help ensure that no other future plots to overturn an election can succeed. And we will make further specific recommendations in our final report, based in part on the evidence you will hear today. Our hearings last summer began with an outline of President Trump's multi-part plan to overturn the 2020 presidential election. We then proceeded to demonstrate each of these elements in detail with more than 20 hours of evidence. Today, we will see new evidence, but as the chairman said, we will also synthesize evidence you've seen before. The vast weight of evidence presented so far has shown us that the central cause of January 6th was one man. Donald Trump, whom many others followed. None of this would have happened without him. He was personally and substantially involved in all of it. Exactly how did one man cause all of this? Today, we will focus on President Trump's state of mind, his intent, his motivations, and how he spurred others to do his bidding, and how another January 6th could happen again if we do not take necessary action to prevent it. As you view our evidence today, I would suggest a focus on the following points. First, as you will see, President Trump had a premeditated plan to declare that the election was fraudulent and stolen before Election Day, before he knew the election results. He made his stolen election claims on election night against the advice of his campaign without any evidence in hand. Then, over the next two months, he sought to find those who would help him invent and spread lies about the widespread fraud. Many of those who stepped forward to help, including Rudy Giuliani, knew they never had real evidence sufficient to change the election results, 
And on the evening of January 5th, they admitted they were still trying to find that phantom evidence. Of course, as a result of making intentionally false claims of election fraud, Mr. Giuliani's license to practice law has now been suspended. Second, please recognize that President Donald Trump was in a unique position, better informed about the absence of widespread election fraud than almost any other American. President Trump's own campaign experts told him that there was no evidence to support his claims. His own Justice Department appointees investigated the election fraud claims and told him, point blank, they were false. In mid-December 2020, President Trump's senior advisors told him the time had come to concede the election. Donald Trump knew the courts had ruled against him. He had all of this information, but still he made the conscious choice to claim fraudulently that the election was stolen to pressure state officials to change election results, to manufacture fake electoral slates, to attempt to corrupt our Department of Justice, to summon tens of thousands of supporters to Washington. Knowing that they were angry, knowing that some of them were armed, he sent them to the Capitol. Then as the riot was underway, he incited his supporters to further violence by publicly condemning his vice president. And then he refused for hours to disband his rioting supporters and instruct them to leave the Capitol, even when he was begged repeatedly to do so. None of this is normal or acceptable or lawful in our republic. Third, please consider today who had a hand in defeating President Trump's efforts to overturn the election. Vice President Pence, Bill Barr, Jeff Rosen, and others at the Department of Justice state Republican officials, White House staff who blocked proposals to mobilize the military to seize voting machines and run new elections, our Capitol Police, aided by the Metropolitan Police, other federal law enforcement, and our National Guard who arrived later in the afternoon. All of these people had a hand in stopping Donald Trump. This leads us to a key question. Why would Americans assume that our Constitution and our institutions in our republic are invulnerable to another attack. Why would we assume that those institutions will not falter next time? A key lesson of this investigation is this. Our institutions only hold when men and women of good faith make them hold, regardless of the political cost. We have no guarantee that these men and women will be in place next time. Any future president inclined to attempt what Donald Trump did in 2020 has now learned not to install people who could stand in the way. And also, please consider this. The rulings of our courts are respected and obeyed because we as citizens pledge to accept and honor them. Most importantly, our president, who has a constitutional obligation to faithfully execute the laws, swears to accept them. What happens when the president disregards the court's rulings as illegitimate, when he disregards the rule of law? That, my fellow citizens, breaks our republic. Finally, as you view the evidence today, also consider this. President Trump knew from unassailable sources that his election fraud claims were false. He admitted he had lost the election. 
he took actions consistent with that belief. Claims that President Trump actually thought the election was stolen are not supported by fact and are not a defense. There is no defense that Donald Trump was duped or irrational. No president can defy the rule of law and act this way in a constitutional republic, period. Mr. Chairman, our nation's federal judges are sworn to do impartial justice, to preserve our Constitution and preserve our union. Dozens of these judges have been addressing January 6th cases, and many have given us plain, unmistakable warnings about the direction of our republic. Let me read from one judge's statement given at a recent sentencing hearing. Quote, high-ranking members of Congress and state officials who know perfectly well the claim of fraud was and is untrue and that the election was legitimate are so afraid of losing their power they won't say so. It has to be crystal clear that it is not patriotism. It is not standing up for America to stand up for one man who knows full well that he lost instead of the Constitution he was trying to subvert. Mr. Chairman, the violence and lawlessness of January 6th was unjustifiable. But our nation cannot only punish the foot soldiers who stormed our Capitol. Those who planned to overturn our election and brought us to the point of violence must also be accountable. With every effort to excuse or justify the conduct of the former president, we chip away at the foundation of our republic. Indefensible conduct is defended. Inexcusable conduct is excused. Without accountability, it all becomes normal and it will recur. So as we watch the evidence today, please consider where our nation is in its history. Consider whether we can survive for another 246 years. Most people in most places on earth have not been free. America is an exception. And America continues only because we bind ourselves to our founders' principles, to our Constitution. We recognize that some principles must be beyond politics, inviolate, and more important than any single American who has ever lived. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I yield back. Without objections, the chair recognizes the gentlewoman from California, Ms. Lofgren, for an opening statement. Uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, very uh, shortly after the election, oh, uh, we begin this meeting by returning to election night, November 3rd, 2020. Uh, as the chairman noted, we've previously presented testimony about how the election results uh, were expected to come in that night. In certain states, ballots cast by mail uh, before election day would be counted only after the polls closed that evening. Uh, that meant that election results would not be known for some time. Although President Trump's campaign manager, Bill Stepien, House Republican leader Kevin McCarthy, and Jared Kushner had advised Donald Trump to encourage mail-in voting by Republicans, President Trump did not do so. Yeah, I just remember generally, you know, you had people arguing that we had a, a very, very robust get-out-the-vote effort and that you know, mail-in ballots could be a good thing uh, for us if we looked at it correctly. 
there was one meeting uh, that was had uh, in particular. Um, I invited uh, Kevin McCarthy to join the meeting, uh, he being of like mind on, on the issue uh, with me, um, in which we made our case uh, for for why we believed mail-in balloting, mail-in voting, um, not to be a bad thing for his campaign. Um, you know, the, the president's mind was, was, was made up. Hong Kong is the international launch pack into the Greater Bay Area. Hong Kong has a very efficient cattle service. We can help to drive Greater Bay Area development as a technology hub. The opportunity is there. Grab it. Go for it. So it was expected before the election that the initial counts in some states in other words, those votes cast on election day would be more heavily Republican. And this would create the false perception of a lead for President Trump, a so-called red mirage. But as the results uh, of the absentee ballots that were later counted, uh, there, there could be trends towards Vice President uh, Biden uh, as those mail-in ballots were counted. Now, on election night, Donald Trump's advisors specifically told him he didn't have a factual basis to declare victory. He should wait for the remaining ballots to be counted. Here is campaign manager Bill Stepien. It was far too early to be making any calls like that. Um, ballots, ballots were still being counted. Ballots were still going to be counted for days. Um, and it was far too early to be making any proclamation like that. I believe my recommendation was to say that uh, votes were still being counted. It's too early to to, to tell, um, too early to, to call the race. But President Trump did declare victory in the late hours of election night. Not only did he declare victory, he also called for the ongoing count of votes to just stop. Stopping the count would have violated both federal and state laws and also disenfranchised millions of voters who lawfully cast their vote. He called for that action anyway. Here's what he said. This is a fraud on the American public. This is an embarrassment to our country. We were getting ready to win this election. Frankly, we did win this election. We want all voting to stop. We now know more about President Trump's intention for election night. The evidence shows that his false victory speech was planned well in advance, before any votes had been counted. It was a premeditated plan by the president to declare victory no matter what the actual result was. He made a plan to stay in office before election day. Now, the vice president's staff was concerned with what Donald Trump might do on election night. They took steps to ensure that Mr. Pence would not echo a false victory announcement from President Trump. Here's what the vice president's counsel, Greg Jacob, told us about his preparations with the vice president's chief of staff, Mark Short. 
Mark had indicated to me that uh, there was a possibility that there would be uh, a declaration of victory uh, within the White House that some might push for. Uh, and this is prior to the election results being known. And that he was trying to figure out a way of uh, avoiding the vice president sort of being thrust into uh, a position of uh, uh, needing to opine on that when he might not have sufficient information to do so. Now, following this conversation, Mr. Jacob drafted a memo to Mr. Short, which the select uh, committee got from the National Archives. The memo was sent on November 3rd, Election Day, uh, and advised it is essential that the vice president not be perceived by the public as having decided questions concerning disputed electoral uh, votes prior to the full development of all relevant facts. A few days before the election, Mr. Trump also consulted with one of his outside advisors, inside activist Tom Fitton, about the strategy for election night. The select committee got this pre-prepared statement from the National Archives. As you can see, the draft statement, which was sent on October 31st, declares, we had an election today and I won. And the Fitton memo specifically indicates a plan that only the votes counted by the election day deadline, and there is no election day deadline, would matter. Everyone knew that ballot counting would lawfully continue past election day, claiming that the counting on election uh, night must stop before millions of votes were counted was, as we now know, a key part of President Trump's uh, premeditated uh, plan. On election day, just after 5 p.m., Mr. Fitton indicated he'd spoken with the president about the statement. Sending along again, just talk to him about the draft below. Again, this uh, plan uh, to keep, um, uh, to declare victory was in place before any of the results had been determined. In the course of our uh, investigation, we also interviewed Brad Parscale, President Trump's former campaign manager. He told us he understood that President Trump planned as early as July that he would say he won the election even if he lost. And just a few days before the election, Steve Bannon, a former Trump chief White House strategist and outside advisor to President Trump, spoke to a group of his associates from China and said this. And what Trump's going to do is just declare victory, right? He's going to declare victory. But that doesn't mean he's the winner. He's just going to say he's the winner. The Democrats, more of our people vote early that count. Theirs vote in May. And so they're going to have a natural disadvantage, and Trump's going to take advantage of it. That's our strategy. He's going to declare himself a winner. So when you wake up Wednesday morning, it's going to be a firestorm. Also, also if, Trump is, if Trump is losing by 10 or 11 o'clock at night, it's going to be even crazier. No, because he's going to sit right there and say they stole it. I'm, yeah, court, uh, I'm directing the attorney general 
to shut down all ballot places in all 50 states. It's going to be no. He's not going out easy. If, Trump, if Biden's winning, Trump is going to do some crazy shit. As you know, Mr. Bannon refused to testify in our investigation. He's been convicted of criminal contempt of Congress, and he's awaiting sentencing. But the evidence indicates that Mr. Bannon had advanced knowledge of Mr. Trump's intent to clear victory falsely on election night, but also that Mr. Bannon knew about Mr. Trump's planning for January 6th. Here's what Bannon said on January 5th. All hell is going to break loose tomorrow. It's all converging, and now we're on, as they say, the point of attack, right? The point of attack tomorrow. I'll tell you this. It's not going to happen like you think it's going to happen, okay? It's going to be quite extraordinarily different. And all I can say is strap in. You have made this happen, and tomorrow it's game day. So strap in. Let's get ready. Another close associate.